RadioInfluence.com Why, Crusher, it's good to see you. You're listening to Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 101260 with your questions, comments, or smart-ass remarks. Welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. Jeff Kershell here, the con man behind the glass, keeping us on track. And we're your weekly source for performance information. Listen, reach out to us. Questions, comments, smart remarks. Crushperformance.com is the website. You can email us, info at Crush Performance. And follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Crush. I've been posting, or I've been working to post every single day, our Crush Stay Sharp During the Shutdown drills, ideas, thoughts. Uh, we've got some really good links to things like interesting TED Talks, things that you can start thinking about and doing to take full advantage of the shutdown because that's how we're framing this as an opportunity to get better. And we'll talk about that as the weeks roll on and certainly later in today's show. Well, today's show, a very important one. It is part two of our three-part series on anti-doping and drugs in sports. And today we will talk with Mr. Richard Pound, the uh, former VP of the International Olympic Committee and the very first president of the World Anti-Doping Agency. We'll talk to Mr. Pound about the handling of the COVID shutdown, right from Little League developmental sports, right up to Pro Leagues to the international game. Do we get a passing grade? And we're also going to talk to him about the landscape. Where are we at in the fight against drugs in sports? The integrity of sport is in jeopardy. And when you look at what's happening on the global scale with the Russian doping scandal, the very integrity of sport could be at risk here. And Mr. Pound was an instrumental player in the Russian investigation or the investigation that cracked down on this Russian scandal, blew it wide open with the IAAF. It has now been expanded to virtually every single sport in Russia, and uh, they're dealing with it in the best way they can. So we're going to talk to him about the landscape and all of this as part two of our series on anti-doping. Last week, a very, very important show. We spoke with Mr. Don Hooten, who is the founder and executive chairman of the Taylor Hooten Foundation. And if you had a chance to listen to last week's show, you'll know why it was so important. And you'll also understand why it was our number one show in the series. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that show, I'll give you a little background on what it's all about. Um, Don Hooten and his family uh, lost their son Taylor in 2003 at the age of 17. Uh, Taylor was an avid baseball player starting his first year in high school trying to make the varsity team and his coach innocently and simply said hey you know if you got a little bigger a little stronger you know you're gonna you're gonna be able to do some good things on this team and of course Taylor taking that to heart and being a competitor started working hard and getting involved with the players around the team little did anybody know that the majority of that high school baseball team were using steroids and performance-enhancing drugs. Taylor got caught up in it, and shortly after his 17th birthday, committed suicide due to some of the side effects and personality changes associated with heavy, short-term, serious steroid use. And the Hootons 
in honor of Taylor and to spread the good word and to ensure that no family would ever have to go through what they went through, started something called the Taylor Hooten Foundation, which is a non-for-profit educational foundation. You can check them out at taylorhooten.com, H-O-O-T-O-N, or sorry, dot org, taylorhooten.org. And they just have great resources and great information for parents, for coaches, for teachers and athletes just to educate themselves. And later in the show, we'll be going over some of the numbers that raise the concern. The numbers are alarming. Who's using? When are kids starting to use? And I stress and emphasize the word kids because it's starting much sooner than you might imagine. And why are they using? You're going to be surprised what the fastest growing user group is. Later in the show, we're going to go over all of these numbers. And that brings us to our question of the day, the crush question of the day. In the name of fair play and an equal level playing field, if an athlete were to test positive, are we doing enough in terms of punishments? We have suspensions. We've got fines. Are we doing enough? That's the first question of the day. Get to us. You can tweet. You can direct message us on Facebook, on Instagram. You can check us out on YouTube. Um, You can get me on Twitter at Jeff Crush. But let us know if you think we're doing enough in terms of the fines. Or should we be more harsh? Should we look at something more along the lines of the Russian ban on sport? And we're not just talking about this started with the Russian uh, Athletics Track and Field Association. That's where the initial investigation focused because of a whistleblower that came to the World Anti-Doping Agency who commissioned Mr. Pound to start a investigative group to look into what exactly was going on and all hell broke loose. And it's turned into the suspension of the entire Russian sporting world, not just track and field. They are basically shut down from international competition across the board. Are we doing enough, you know, with our professional sports here in North America? Are we doing enough to deter the use? And what kind of message is that sending to our youth? Well, you know, in the show last week with Mr. Hooten, he was actually invited to speak at the congressional hearings for steroid use in baseball. And that was in 2005, two years after Taylor committed suicide. And the Hootons had put out a big push to educate parents because they were literally blindsided by the fact that Taylor was using steroids. And when they discovered how many of the other boys were using as well, uh, they made it their mission to spread the good word. And it caught the attention of some very, very serious people in the sporting world, including the commissioner of Major League Baseball. And Don was invited to speak at the congressional hearings. And during his five-minute time allotment uh, that stretched, I believe, to almost 12 minutes, minutes, he called out the athletes. He called them cowards. He called the athletes cowards for not being brave enough to go onto the field and compete as themselves in a clean way without using And he also called them out in the fact that, you know, despite whether they want to be role models or not, just by the very position they are in as professional athletes, they are role models. They don't have a choice to be a role model. And when you look at the influence these athletes have across the board on our youth and our youth that love sport and look up to these athletes as role models and mentors 
it's really important. And it was a strong message to send. And I'm glad Don did it. You should go back. If you did not hear last week's show, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to it. You can get it uh, on our website. Uh, the podcast is there. It's on virtually every single platform you listen to uh, um, your podcasts on. But it's an important conversation. It truly is an important conversation for parents, coaches, teachers, and certainly the athletes themselves. And, you know, in a study done by Procter & Gamble, they found that over 85% of high school age kids have not had a conversation revolving banned substances and PEDs with a parent, teacher, or coach. And I think this is something we need to work into the fabric of our sporting systems. We need to talk about this stuff. And I've, I've made it a mission of mine from early in my career to have open discussions with players because it can be dangerous, especially when these kids are getting this stuff on the black market. It's really dangerous. So the question of the day, all right, are we doing enough? And here's another question. This is something that's sort of we've been talking about as we build this series and put this series together. For those legacy athletes, the ones that are going to be enshrined into the halls of fame and, you know, the all-stars and, you know, the ones who are perennially at the Pro Bowl games and, you know, representing their sports. If an athlete tests positive, do they still get that honor? Here's a question that's been you know, plaguing me for years and years. If an athlete tests positive, do they still get to keep their Olympic medal? Well, we've seen Olympic medals stripped away and rightfully so. Think of all those athletes that just are trying to do it right. And then you have all these other characters cutting corners. They test positive. You get your, you get your medal taken away. So the big one for me, does an athlete who's tested positive in their career have the right to go into a hall of fame? That for me would be the big question. Do you have the right to go into the Hall of Fame and be enshrined for the history, in the history of your sport, regardless of what it is? I have a strong opinion on that, but I'd like to hear what you think. Get us info at crushperformance.com is the website. We're going to tweet this out as well. So this will be a Twitter question on a poll. Yes or no? It's going to be a simple one. There's going to be no exceptions. Either you're, either you're guilty or you're not. And I'd like to hear what you think in terms of whether a person who tests positive, now hear me clearly, there has to be a positive test. It can't be speculation. It can't even be strong speculation or strong indicators that somebody's been using. We have to have a positive test. If an athlete tests positive, can they get into the Hall of Fame? I think you guys know my answer. I'd like to hear yours. Check our Twitter feed here over this, this week. Uh, it's going to be posted a couple times. And uh, we'll also post it on Facebook uh, at Crush Performance. So, you know, interesting questions. An interesting time in sport as we're cracking down and raising awareness. And, of course, with this shutdown, uh, there's an opportunity to really, really improve your performance. And I think that's one thing that we've learned over the years, that I've personally learned over the years. Why do athletes go to the dark side? Well, for the most part, it's because they don't know what else to do. They either don't know how to crack in to that highest level of sport. Maybe they're just a little bit short and they don't know what else they can do or they're there and they feel themselves slipping away or they feel the heat of a nung, the next generation of players coming, coming along. Or, you know, you're just sort of losing a step. You're aging. And, you know, you see some players who can do it the right way and have done it the right way. And I think more often than not, you know, the players who do decide to go to the dark side, they really don't have to. What we know about human performance right now and, and matching that with what we know in human biochemistry, blood chemistry, and maximizing training and performance, um, man, we haven't never 
had this kind of understanding before in the history of sport performance. So we're in an exciting time, but at the same time, we also have to crack down and level the playing field because there are going to be those, you know, ethically and morally compromised entities out there that, that will go to the dark side. And there's so much money involved, you know, that, that, that it's going to happen. So what do we do? We're going to talk with Mr. Dick Pound here coming up after the break about exactly that. And then later in the show, again, we're going to go over some of the very scary numbers when we look at steroid use among kids. And I'm passionate about talking to the kids about this, because if we're going to start giving athletes the information they need to make informed choices, it has to start when they're young. Yes, listen, we can help every professional athlete. There's not a professional athlete on the planet right now that we can't help get better. Not one. I don't even care if they're the best of all time. There are things you can do to get better. You just have to have the right people around you, the right mindset, and you have to understand where you're at in your career and in your development because it's a long game. Development's a long game. So we're going to talk about some of the incredibly scary numbers looking at steroid use among kids and for parents, coaches, and athletes and teachers. This is a conversation you'll want to stick around for. That's going to come up in the last segment of the show. And, you know, over the course of this shutdown, here's a great opportunity. And again, we've been talking about this since it, since it all started, but we've got to frame this shutdown the right way. Here's what we're encouraging every one of our athletes to do right now. And some of them are well into it. Some of them are a couple weeks into it already. School is shut down. Your sport is shut down. You're missing your friends. You, you know, you miss your graduations, your provincial finals, your state finals. You've missed a lot of things and it's just different. So let's adjust and let's frame it up the right way. Okay. I'm not saying it's any easier, but boy, oh boy, there's a huge hidden opportunity here for everybody who's willing to go out and get it. When one of our athletes gets injured, you know, we give them a little short time period to be frustrated and sad. And you have to be, that's part of the process. A little bit angry, maybe, you know, and then let's move forward with purpose. Let's move forward in the direction that's going to help our athletes get better. Because when an athlete gets injured, the first thing we start thinking about, the second it happens, what can we do to get better? Get the injury assessed, okay? Figure out what the therapy and the treatment is going to be. And then while all that's going on, what can we do to make that athlete better? And when it comes to improving sport performance, we really do target the athlete first. If you are a really well-rounded, accomplished athlete, you're going to be able to do so much more as a player inside of your sport. And that's why being a multi-sport athlete through those critical developmental years is so vitally important. And here's an opportunity right now that's been laid out before us to do exactly that. Each day on, on, on our social media platforms, I've, again, been posting ideas of things you can do to get away from your sport. And here's how we're handling it. We've asked every single one of our athletes, from our pro athletes right down to our, our high school developmental athletes, to build a daily plan. Okay, you're isolated. You can't go out. You're not doing the things you normally do. What's your day going to look like now? Are you still doing school online? You know, are you still trying to, you know, stay involved, learning? Are you um, totally shut down and focusing on your sport? So here's what we're doing. When are you going to wake up? When are you going to eat? When are you going to practice your skills? 
as a player in your sport? And when are you going to train as an athlete, depending on where you're at? Is it going to be strength training? Are you going to be working on your cardio? Are you going to be working on movement, flexibility, range of motion, vision, focus? You name it. This is the time. And then we're also now plugging in another little session. What are you going to do to improve yourself as an athlete away from your sport? And so like, here's a great example. One of the things we've asked one of our, our hitters, cause he's a real accomplished, uh, hitter in baseball. Um, and we, you know, he's isolated. We just look, Hey, what do you have? What do you have available? Well, you know, he's got a basement, he's got a garage, he's, you know, he's got all, you know, he's got a yard and a house. He's back with his parents. Um, but he said, you know, I said, well, do you have any like games that you play? Like, what do you do? Like, what do you do? Well, I've got a dartboard downstairs. I'm going perfect. Perfect. A dartboard is such a great place to start. Okay. Now, is that going to have a lot to do with baseball? Well, you tell me. Here's the task that we sort of set out here for the next week or so on the dartboard. Just looking at accuracy. Okay. We're getting him to throw a certain number of darts. This is called deliberate practice now. What are the benefits of deliberate practice? You know, you hear all these fancy scientific terms. You hear all these guys talking about these crazy themes in training. It's incredibly simple. Getting better in sport is incredibly simple. You do have to know what you're doing, granted, but it's not as complicated as some people might make it out to be. So taking the dartboard as a little, you know, daily 15-minute training session to really, really improve. And what we're looking at as, how we're framing it up, is... Uh, uh, a period of learning how to make adjustments and, and how to focus on deliberate practice. So we're getting him to throw darts with his right hand and his left hand. He's right hand dominant. He's a right hand player in baseball. And uh, we're getting him to throw darts with his right hand and his left hand. So it's kind of like our professional golfers. Let's just say our golfers are hitting their seven iron. On, on a day. It's a day at the, at the range and we're hitting the seven iron. So we've got 300 balls set aside. We're hitting 300 balls in sets of 25. Okay. So we're going to go hit 25 balls until we get up to hundred. And then, you know, we're hit 25, take a break, hit 25, take a break. Now here's the goal. Okay. The flag's at 180 yards and the goal is to land the ball within three feet of the pin, 80% of the time. That's the goal for, let's say, one of our golfers. That's deliberate practice. So the first set of 25 balls, our golfer gets up and boom, takes a, takes a hack and lands just beautifully. Perfect. Try to repeat. Boom. It goes too far to the right. Boom. Next one goes to the right. Boom. Next one goes to the right. Do you make an adjustment? You need to make an adjustment. And not an adjustment, maybe even on the pin. Boom. Hey, try to pull it to the left a little bit. Boom. A little bit to the left. And now you have a reference point to the right and to the left that you can hone in and work on. And that's deliberate practice. So using a dartboard as an example, I mean, you could use crunched up paper in a wastebasket. Waste you could use tennis balls into a pail, whatever. You guys can use your imagination. But here's the idea of deliberate practice. Learn, learn, learn. Learn from your errors, learn from your successes. So for our dart player, we're getting to, th to throw six darts at a time. And if he's too far to the right, too high, too low, we're asking him to do a counter adjustment. So if he throws, he's shooting at the bullseye and shoots it too high. And the next dart, we're asking him to shoot it on the opposite side as low and then hone in and work towards the middle. After two weeks of doing this, I'm going to suggest we know what's going to happen. We're going to have a pretty damn good dart thrower. And that's the idea behind 
deliberate practice. So it doesn't matter whether you're stepping into the batting cage, onto the onto the driving range for golf, whether you're taking shots in your backyard on a net. Step in there with purpose. Okay, and be deliberate with every single shot. And that's what we're doing to help our athletes take advantage of this downtime to be better players and more accomplished players when we get back to sport. Because it's coming back, ladies and gentlemen, and it's coming back fast. All right, we got to get out fast. And coming up right after this break, uh, we're going to continue with episode number two of our three-part series on anti-doping and drugs. We'll be talking with Richard Pound, former vice president of the International Olympic Committee and the very first president of the World Anti-Doping Agency right after this on Crush Performance. Stick around, everybody. If you have any performance questions, comments, or smart remarks, text Crusher at 101260 and follow him on Twitter at Jeff Crush. Now, here he is, the Crusher. And welcome back to Crush Performance, everybody. Jeff Crushell here, the con man behind the glass. We're your weekly source for performance information. Listen, if you want to reach out to us with your questions, Comments, smart remarks, or if you have a topic or something you'd like us to investigate, let us know. We answer every single message we get. And if you need help with something, we're more than happy to lend a helping hand. If we don't have the answers, I can pretty much guarantee that we know somebody who does and we'll get that answer for you. So write to us. Info at Crush Performance is the email. You can follow us on the internet, crushperformance.com, on Twitter, at Jeff Crush, and just search out Crush Performance for all the other social media. All right, well... Episode number two of our anti-doping and drugs in sports series continues. And today I'm very uh, proud to introduce Mr. Richard Pound, former VP of the International Olympic Committee, the very first president of the World Anti-Doping Agency. Mr. Pound, welcome to the show. So in light of everything that's gone on here with the COVID-19 outbreak, I think I'd like to start here. You have seen a lot in your time in sport, but I don't think anybody's ever come across something quite like this, the massive shutdown right from the grassroots up to professional sport and then into the international sporting world. Uh, We've never seen anything quite like this. What kind of grade do you give sport in terms of the way they've handled this outbreak? And in the name of public safety, does sport get a passing grade here? Well, uh, in, in some cases you get overreactions, uh, in others, you get the denial that, that there's any kind of a problem, and so it's uh, it's hard to say. I mean, for, for for real-time events, uh, I think you have to make a, a call as you see it at the time, and uh, by and large, if, if uh, there have been any errors, it, it, it's on the side of being conservative and, and not being uh, potentially reckless. So I... Uh, on balance, I think the uh, the sport communities handle things pretty well in the circumstances. Yeah, right. We're talking with Mr. Richard Pound, former vice president of the IOC and former president of the World Anti-Doping Agency. Actually, the first president of the World Anti-Doping Agency, being a former athlete yourself, Mr. Pound, and of course, you know, with your involvement at the uh, a, the building of the initial WADA structure. Uh, You are a staunch advocate of clean sport and maintaining the integrity of sport and the power of WADA and testing. If we were to go back to the early days of WADA when it was coming together, uh, what was the landscape there and what was the inspiration that led to the formation of the World Anti-Doping Agency? Well, the landscape was (laughs) looked like a Jackson Pollock painting. I mean, it was all (laughs) over the place and there were uh, different rules for different sports, different uh, penalties for doping infractions. Uh, you, you had a kind of a bell curve of, uh, of expertise out there where some sports were quite 
sophisticated in dealing with doping, and others didn't even have rules uh, at all. So uh, what was exciting about the early days of WADA was, was building something that had never been done uh, or attempted before and uh, getting together uh, all of the countries and all of the sports federations and national Olympic committees and saying, look, we, we need to uh, put some structure to all of this because uh, it's currently a mess. And uh, the opportunity had arisen because of the, uh, the what was called the Festina scandal in the Tour de France mm-hmm. uh, of 1998 when one of the teams, well, the Festina team was discovered to have industrial quantities of, of doping substances and, and equipment uh, you know, in, in their possession. And they were... A lot of them were arrested by the French police, and that sort of woke everybody up to the uh, the, the situation. And, and everyone was saying, especially in in Europe, where a lot of the international sports federations are located, say, "Wow, if this can happen in the Tour de France, which is uh, the big event of, of cycling, maybe it could happen to my sport as well." So that led to the uh, IOC thinking about what could be done, and, and our conclusion was that you couldn't rely on cycling or, or any other sport, for that matter, to be sure that its um, uh, players were clean. You couldn't rely on any particular country to make sure that its players were clean, and there was a perception of the IOC at the time that it, it was too weak to control the the Olympic movement. So our solution to that, the proposed solution, was that what we need is an independent, international, and anti-doping uh, agency uh, that's not under the control of any particular stakeholder. And so we that sounded like a good idea, and we called a, a world conference in Lausanne early in 1999 to see whether uh, the political authorities and the sports authorities could agree on that, and, and they did, and that led to the formation of WADA in uh, late 1999. And then, of course, you move forward uh, into the early 2000s. The World Anti-Doping Code, I believe, was first implemented in 2004. What a massive undertaking that might have must have been to put all that together. And you were right there in those early days. Yeah, that was a, that was a, a, a very interesting experiment in sort of international sports diplomacy and, and diplomacy in general uh, to get all of those uh, people to uh, agree to to have a, a single set of rules that apply to all sports and all countries and all competitions. And so that, that was one of the great uh, landmarks of, of the early days of WADA. I think your early experiences with the International Cycling Union and the issues in the Tour de France, but also in the early days of track and field, which you were pretty vocal about, sort of set the stage. Did those incidents give you guidance as to how WADA might want to attack the problem in the big picture? It was. I mean, it, clearly, we needed uh, a, a, an independent authority to manage this, and and so if you have a, a code uh, which we negotiated, uh, then to make it effective, uh, all of the stakeholders have to include that code in their own uh, competition rules. So that the tennis and swimming and you know, track and field and so on, and uh, then all of the governments, uh, uh, the IOC itself. And we, uh, part of the deal was that we would, uh, at least in the Olympic movement, have that all done before the opening of the uh, Athens Games in 2004. Mm-hmm. 
it was a little harder for the for the governments to get uh, organized that quickly, but they said, look, what what we're going to do is negotiate an international convention among governments that will use the, the World Anti-Doping Code as the basis for our fight against uh, doping in sports. So for the first time in history, you have uh, the sports movement and the, the, the states, the governments, all singing from the same song sheet. And, and that, too, was a, a huge uh, undertaking because when we started the discussion with the sport, the governments, rather, they were talking about doping, oh, they said, you know, we know quite a lot about uh, doping, uh, you know, marijuana, cocaine, heroin. We said, no, 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 <laughs> that's a different set of drugs. So we're talking about steroids and, and, uh, and stimulants and beta blockers and all that sort of stuff. So we had to educate them uh, as to what sport doping was as opposed to simply the recreational use of uh, narcotics. Interesting times. I can't imagine all the moving pieces. You were sort of the uh, conductor of the orchestra at that time, so to speak, because of all the moving pieces and to bring them together towards the Athens game. So everybody's working in unison. What an undertaking that is. And I'm glad it happened because uh, if you look at where we've come since then, boy, oh boy, um, there's been a big impact. Still work to do, but there, we've made a lot of progress. Yeah, I think, I think so. And we've now finally got to the point where WADA has... Uh, both investigation powers and the ability to propose uh, sanctions in the event that there's been a, a breach of the World Anti-Doping Code. And we see that with the Russians now. Uh, we proposed uh, a set of sanctions for their, their dreadful behavior over the past few years. Uh, they, of course, rejected that as they've rejected everything else, but it now goes directly to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and it'll be decided uh, definitively. Uh, sometime uh, before the games in uh, Tokyo this year, assuming they take place. Well, we're talking with Richard Bound, former vice president of the International Olympic Committee and former president of the World Anti-Doping Agency, the uh, initial first president of the World Anti-Doping Agency. Well, regarding the Russian ban and what, what, a, what a time that is in sport, for crying out loud, the IAAF comes down hard, uh, I think, with the support of WADA and the IOC to ban the Russians from international competition. Of course, that led into uh, the Olympic Games. Um, Mr. Pound, do you feel WADA at that time had the power they needed to, to hand down the... I guess, the, the penalties that needed to be handed down at that time? Or, or do we still need to give WADA more power? Well, I, I think we need to, to give WADA the power to impose penalties, not just to, to, uh, to, to propose or recommend them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, uh, it's like the Securities and Exchange Commission. It, you, know, you, you see when companies get offside on their financial reporting or conduct, uh, they actually can and fine and suspend uh, the uh, the guilty uh, companies and officials. So, I, I think the next step for WADA is is that, and and I I hope that the stakeholders of WADA now understand what a good job WADA actually can do if it has these powers, and that I, I hope will act as it, both a a deterrent and an encouragement uh, for all of the athletes who do play fair and, and compete cleanly uh, to know that there is somebody out there looking after their interests.
Yeah, and that's such an important thing, especially in this day and age where we have so many athletes that want to do it right. And I think we're all uh, aware of that based on how the Russian scandal uh, came to light in, in the public eye, which is also very important. Mr. Pound, what do you think the role of professional sports, especially in the North American market is? And we could probably say Europe as well and maybe cricket in, in other parts of the world. But in terms of professional sports, we are 15 years out from the MLB congressional hearings and the Balco scandal and everything that happened in the early 2000s with Major League Baseball. Um, what role do you think that played in pushing forward the fight against drugs in sport? Because we've seen Major League Baseball really adopt sort of the the uh, doping code, the anti-doping code now. And they're, I think, on the forefront, along with maybe the NFL as well. But we're seeing some progress there. Well, there's been some progress. It, it, there, there's a different dynamic uh, in the professional sports because uh, they have, they have a different approach to the practice of sport than, say, within the Olympic movement. In, in the professional sports, this is a money-making exercise um, for both players and, and owners alike. And uh, their relationship is governed by these collective bargaining agreements uh, rather than a, a universal set of rules like the World Anti-Doping Code. And, and uh, they're in it for the money. Yeah, and it, it's not good for the money-making side of things if uh, if some of the stars are uh, suspended for doping, and so there's very little interest in in um, being very rigorous about uh, uh, doping. I think baseball, uh, to be fair, has has probably come a long way from uh, where they were uh, years ago. Uh, the other sports, less so. There's uh, ongoing denial of the existence of a problem, uh, very, very weak penalties. You know, if you get caught for steroids in the National Football League, uh, you're suspended for, I think, four games, and the, the players are complaining about that. They think it should only be two, hmm. um, whereas you could get, you know, two years or even four years uh, in, uh, in the Olympic movement. You know, a steroid program will last you four or five years if it's a good program, and if you your your risk is only that you lose two games in 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 exchange for having a an advantage for the next four years, there's there's not much incentive uh, to uh, to avoid uh, using the drug. So it's that dynamic is different, and it's it's, it's you just have to keep working at uh, making sure the the players understand the risks and that the public. Uh, uh, can be satisfied that they're watching honest sport as opposed to doped up sport, uh, and that's a that's a a climate changer that's going to take uh, longer than than uh, it has in the Olympic movement. Yeah, do you think public opinion here will be a, a heavy weight? I mean, one thing that we're all concerned about, of course, is the fact that whether these professional players want to be role models or not, just because of the situation they're in, they are role models. And the message going down to our youth is incredibly powerful. And when we see these athletes testing positive and using, um, it's, a, it's a very, very mixed bag of messages that we're sending. Yeah, it is, and you know you don't want to get to the point where if you you know you take uh, one of your children to a, a football game or baseball game or whatever it may be to say, now my boy, someday if you uh, take enough of this stuff and you lie convincingly enough, you could be out there on the field <laughs> making 
millions of dollars. Right. And that's, I think that's a, a much worse message than, uh, than the Olympic message, which is let, let's do it right because it, it, it's fair. Uh, we've all agreed on the rules. Uh, and it's dangerous if you do take these things, so let's not do it. That's, that's a, a much better perspective, I think, to bring to the, uh, the, the practice of sport. Yeah, we're talking with Richard Bound, former VP of the IOC and former president of the World Anti-Doping Agency. Uh, the Russian scandal, of course, as you mentioned, uh, assuming, well, that the uh, Tokyo Olympics do take place at some point. But in terms of the Russian scandal here, is this an opportunity, Mr. Pound, to send a clear shot across the bow to anybody else who dares? Or, or are we at a level where we can test accurately enough to deter this sort of thing. I just, I still am, I'm still flabbergasted that this even happened in this day and age, and it's frustrating as hell. Well, it's uh, it, it's more likely to happen in closed countries, but uh, it, it, Russia is certainly not the only uh, country that has uh, organized doping, but I think the message, uh, assuming we are successful in the uh, Court of Arbitration for Sport, is that no matter how big and powerful and important you may be as a country, the rules still apply to you. And uh, that, I think, would, would act as a big, big deterrent to uh, uh, even the superpowers. So what's next? What do you feel is next? What needs to happen now with Russia? Uh, we see the International Cycling Union testing. Do you like the idea of the uh, biological passport? Is that our ticket to the future, or are we are we there yet? Well, it's... The uh, athlete biological passport is is one of the the tools we now have in our arsenal, uh, which which can detect uh, doping without you know actually having to catch somebody uh, providing a urine or blood sample. You know, statistically, it can be uh, you can analyze what's happened and, and assert a, a, an anti-doping offense, but. Uh, in, investigations are, are important, uh, encouraging whistleblowers, you know, people who've, who've known what's going on and see it in, in action. Uh, some of them will be athletes who've been cheated out of their results, and they know who's doing things and what they're doing. And, and if you can make it uh, easy for them to provide information and, and protect them from uh, any kind of uh, uh, retaliation on the part of the sport authorities, uh, that, that's a lot more effective than hoping you manage to test somebody um, at a time when he or she uh, happens to be uh, on the drug program. Yeah, I agree. I agree. True words have not been spoken. Well, Mr. Palante, listen, thank you so much for all you've done for sport and everything you continue to do. Um, where are you right now? Are you uh, sitting back, um, sort of watching from the sidelines? I know you're still very active and involved, but uh, what is your role at this point in, in sort of the WADA watchdog approach to the well, war I'm, on drugs I'm still and sport? On the, uh... I'm not running it anymore, but I'm still on the WADA Foundation board, so I'm my I keep my hand in there, and uh, and and I'm I guess I'm the senior active uh, member of the International Olympic Committee at the moment. Uh, hard as that is to believe for somebody as young as I am. <laughs> um, so uh, I follow this on a, on a regular basis, and uh, I'm hoping that uh, things will turn out to make it possible to have the Olympics in Tokyo. Yeah, well, fingers crossed we're with you there, Mr. Pound. Thank you so much for your time and your uh, thoughts today. Much, much appreciated. 
Nice to chat with you. Okay, bye-bye. All right, there you have it, everybody. Fantastic conversation with Mr. Richard Pound, the very first president of the World Anti-Doping Agency, and he's still very, very involved in governing and policing the sporting world for the benefit of sport, to uphold the integrity of sport, which is what it's all about. Fair playing fields. I'm telling you right now, more athletes want it today than ever before, and so do the fans, I believe, holistically. So uh, I want to thank Mr. Pound for that. Hey, listen, we got to cut out for a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go over some of the very, very scary numbers. Who's using steroids? When do they start using steroids? And what are they being used for? Parents, coaches, teachers, and athletes. This is a conversation for you right after this on Crush Performance. This is Crush Performance. If you have questions, comments, or smart remarks, write to us at crushperformance.com. All right, and welcome back to Crush Performance, everybody. Jeff Grishel here, just coming off a fantastic conversation with Mr. Richard Pound, the founding president of the World Anti-Doping Agency. A great discussion on where we're at in terms of our fight against drugs in sport and upholding the integrity of sport. Uh, Mr. Pound, of course, has been a figure in the battle for many, many years, and we're so glad we uh, were able to track him down and have a conversation on this, our second episode of our three-part series looking into anti-doping and drugs in sports. All right, well, um, at the start of the show, we referred back to episode number one, where we were talking with Don Hooten, the founder and executive chairman of the Taylor Hooten Foundation. Again, you can check out their website. It's taylorhooten.org, and Hooten is spelled H-O-O-T-O-N. Fantastic resource for coaches, parents, and teachers when it comes to um, steroids, PEDs, and APEDs. And the A stands for appearance-enhancing drugs, appearance and performance-enhancing drugs. And for good reason, because the numbers are very, very scary. And when you look at what's happening out there, um, and the fact that you know a lot of parents don't know that their kids are using, it might be because most of the kids who are using aren't even athletes. In a recent report, it was shown that 62.5 of reported school-age steroid users, 62.5% were non-athletes, were using steroids and, and, and banned substances for body imaging and, and self-image type issues. And that's an important conversation, an important number to realize, especially when you look at the average median age for first-time use. The average age for first-time steroid use is 15 years of age, okay? And that's alarming. And to think that we're not having conversations with our kids because we probably have the mindset that our kids aren't even thinking about that stuff. And if you're a young child or a kid is not an athlete, why would they ever think about it? Well, 62.5% of the school-age users are non-athletes. And the fastest-growing user group right now are teen girls. And you can understand this with all the pressure we're putting on our young girls right now. I have three daughters at home. And trust me, around the dinner table, we have open conversations about body image and steroid use and dieting and all the things we see in the media right now. And that's what it takes. Just good, solid conversations that you can have on a drive or at the dinner table. 
bring up an article, go to the Taylor Hooten website and bring up some of the stats and even ask your kids if they feel that maybe some of the kids in their school are using. It's a good way just to open the door of this conversation. And then for our athletes, listen, it's a dark, dark world out there. And the, the story of Taylor is all too common, unfortunately. Taylor, when he was a young high school freshman trying to get on the baseball team, was told by his coach to get bigger and stronger. So he went out and started working his butt off to get bigger and stronger. Little did anybody know that the majority of the boys on the high school baseball team were using steroids. Taylor got caught up in it. He got much stronger, but he also had all the different side effects that go along with the use of steroids. And unfortunately, when it was discovered he was using and when he finally did admit um, the, the caregivers had him quit cold turkey and it was too much. It was too much of a shock. And Taylor wound up committing suicide in his room, um, hung himself with a belt in his bedroom um, when he was just 17 years of age. And this is something that we just don't want to happen ever again. And so these conversations are incredibly important. It only takes less than a second for a student to find steroid sales online. Why this isn't regulated, how they can regulate it, I don't know, but it's easy to get. And when you're getting this stuff online or in the black market, it is incredibly dangerous. This isn't like we're under the guise and guidance of a doctor. It's not like we're getting safe pharmaceutical grade, grade medical grade uh, stuff. These kids are buying stuff on the black market, which is as dangerous as anything else. So Taylor Hooten, org is the website. Have these conversations and go back and listen to last week's show. All right, we are out of time. Thank you for tuning in today. I have to thank Mr. Pound for joining us. Coming up next week, our final, third and final episode of Anti-Doping and Drugs in Sports. We're going to talk with Travis Tiger, the CEO of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. He's been around the block a few times. Some fascinating stories and we're going to get a good idea of where we're at. Um, so until then, everybody, get out there, get better, and we'll talk to you next week on Crush Performance. Radio Influence strives to bring you excellence in podcasting. We work with personalities like TV chef Brian Duffy, radio personalities like Ian Beckles, news and political pundits like independent journalists Frank and Tracy Beans, experts from the sports world like veteran football scout and coach Chris Landry, pro wrestling personality David Penzer, MMA experts Jason Floyd and Daniel Galvan, and strength and conditioning coach Jeff Crochelle. If you're looking for food, sports, music, entertainment, politics, no matter the topic, Radio Influence has something for everyone. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.